We'll have a good time together. We're going to really just pick up right where we left off last night. And so I want to give ourselves plenty of time to do that. And then we'll have a time of prayer and a little intermission between our, uh, between our sessions. But I hope all of you have had a good day in the Lord today. All right, well, let's pray, ask God to guide us, and we'll jump in. you got something to write on, something to write with. We're going to pick right up where we left off last night with this list. And so maybe you got last night's notes. That'd be good. You can review them yourself, but we'll begin here in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us first. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the power of the resurrection. And thank you for the Word of God and the privilege we have of sharing it with other people. I pray now that you'll teach us and give us wisdom and fill us with the Holy Spirit and make us gospel Christians that can be used mightily of you. And we'll thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles again, if you will, to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter number 8. And we're returning to our study of Philip, not just because we like Philip, but because this is uh, the Lord's emphasis for us. Philip was a gospel Christian. He was a man who not only believed the gospel, he tried to get it to others. Let me just tell you what the Christian life is. It's a relay race. What do you do in a relay race? You you catch the baton. You've got to receive it, right? You carry it, and then what's your responsibility? Pass it on. And if you don't pass it on, you don't win the race. Uh, I think we've got far too many believers who believe the gospel, receive the gospel, but they're not relaying what they have received. And so... One of the things I'm really praying for, we, we had a conversation today with a man about this. I'm just praying the Lord will awaken his people to start giving out what they have. Uh, the number one thing I hear people say is, well, I just don't know what to say. All right, let's take a survey. How many of you know how you got saved? Raise your hand, please. Then you know what to say. Uh, really, the problem is not that we don't know what to say. It's many times we don't know where to start. And getting an entry point for the gospel. And that's why I think Philip's example is so helpful to all of us. Now, I've given you already ten things. Let's review class just for a minute. If you're going to be a gospel Christian, number one, you've got to be filled with the Spirit. Not just saved, but spiritual. Number two, you've got to be a servant of Christ and of the church. Because remember, the church is God's vehicle uh, to accomplish the Great Commission in this world. Uh, I'm an evangelist, which means I'm in many local churches, but I have a local church. I have a local church I belong to. I have a local church I'm engaged with. Uh, They pray for me. I'm accountable to them. I'm sent out under their authority. I'm a local church man. And I think sometimes people forget that one of the greatest things they'll ever do for the gospel's sake is simply get involved in what's going on in their local church. Everybody's looking for some big thing to be a part of. Brother, there's nothing bigger on planet earth than the church for which Jesus died. There's nothing in this community any greater than the local New Testament church. And so, serving the Lord through your church, that's essential. Number three, look for divine appointments every day in the daily circumstances of life. We prayed last night for divine appointments. Anybody have the opportunity in the last 24 hours to give out a gospel track or share a testimony or even speak a word for the Lord? Anybody in the last 24 hours? Wonderful. That's great. What were those divine appointments? Here's what I found. If you'll begin every day praying for them, you'll start looking for them. And if you start looking for them, you'll start finding them. It is not that the Lord is not making appointments for us. It is that very often we're walking right by the appointments. We're in such an everlasting hurry. We're so busy. We're so distracted. And so gospel Christians are looking for those. Number four, ask God to give you a love for all people, to fill you with the love of God. 
so that you'll love the Samaritans of our day, so that you'll love the unlovely. And let's just be blunt. We're all unlovely. Uh, why does God love any of us? You know, sometimes we get pretty proud of our own Christianity, don't we? We need to remember we're all a bunch of black-hearted, hell-deserving sinners, and if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be in hell or on our way there. If you preach the gospel to yourself, you'll be more ready to preach the gospel to others. Every day, remind yourself of who you are and whose you are, where you came from and where you would be if it wasn't for Jesus. And that will help you to love all people. Number five, speak much about Christ. Every time Philip opened his mouth, just wanted to talk about Jesus. Paul was the same way. Read and study through the book of Acts. This is fascinating to me, but he's standing before uh, Felix and Festus and Agrippa and these powerful governmental leaders, and they would say, all right, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And every time, you know what he did? Well, let me tell you about what happened on the road to Damascus. Almost like he had nothing better to talk about. Could I just recommend to you that if you'll just tell what Jesus means to you and what Jesus has done in your heart, God will use that. Uh, use the Scriptures, yes, but use your own personal testimony. It's your story. It's personal. Many people who will never listen to a sermon will listen to a story. Many people who will never come to a building like this to listen to a guy like me will listen to you talk about what the Lord has done in your life. They say that Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, in his recorded sermons, which larger than the Encyclopedia Britannica, that's a lot of preaching, that in the recorded sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he gives his personal salvation testimony, how he got saved more than 300 times. That's powerful. Uh, he, he had lots of things to say, but nothing any greater than how he got saved. And so talk about the Lord Jesus. Number six, I said to you, uh, lead new believers to identify with Christ. So once someone professes faith in Christ, you don't just see them born again. You've got to tend to little babies and help them grow in their faith and take the first step, the next step. Uh, by the way, let me just give you a little, little side note to this. We were talking about this today, but uh, in local churches, by and large, most people who get saved around a local church get saved because of the influence of new Christians. Now, there's something to that. Because most of us do more witnessing right after we get saved than the rest of our Christian life combined. shouldn't be that way, but we're so excited. Everybody remember when you first got saved? You just couldn't wait to tell somebody. Want all your family to go to heaven and all the friends to know, right? Uh, stir yourself up so you get that joy of the Lord's salvation again and don't get over the wonder of what it means to be a Christian and talk about the things of God. But here's a little practical note. When you see a new believer, like this precious lady that got saved on the Lord's Day, here's what I've discovered New Christians like that know lost people. I hate to say this, but sometimes Christian folks who've been at it for a long time, we almost insulate ourselves and live in a little bubble, and we barely know lost people. But new believers know lost people, work through them to reach others. And as they identify with Christ, it'll open the gospel door for others to know Jesus. Number seven, I said to you, expect spiritual opposition. So as soon as people start getting saved, Simon the sorcerer pokes his head up, and the devil pushes back. Expect that. Number eight, be sensitive to God's promptings. Uh, Philip certainly was that. The angel spoke to him. Uh, by the way, the second time the Lord spoke to him, he didn't speak through an angel. He simply prompted him by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I don't know anybody that wouldn't be excited that an angel showed up next to them. If I said to you, all right, if an angel told you, go across the street and witness to your neighbor, would you do it? Oh, yes, if an angel showed up. Are you mean to tell me that the word of an angel means more than the prompting of the Holy Spirit? 
I would point out that in Philip's experience, it may have begun with a messenger. That's what angel means, messenger. But there came a moment where it was just he and the Lord. And the Holy Spirit was prompting, and he was sensitive to that prompting. And then number nine, don't be intimidated by anybody. Uh, don't, don't be embarrassed to speak to that Ethiopian man. I know he's wealthy. I know he represents the queen. I know he's powerful. I know he's from a different culture, but he needs Jesus. And everybody you see needs the Lord Jesus. And then number 10, this is where we left off, use the Scriptures. And I love the fact, we'll talk more about this in just a moment, that Philip simply used the gospel record of Isaiah. <laughs> we talk about the gospel according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. But what about the gospel according to Isaiah? That's what Isaiah 53 was, this great messianic passage, this great redemptive passage. It's full of the gospel, and he used the Scriptures to explain to this man how he could be saved. Now, let's begin here. Let's read a little bit. You got your Bible? Acts chapter 8, verse number 27, he arose and went. By the way, there's a good starting point. We got to get out of our church pews and get out of our comfort zone, get out where the lost people are. The Great Commission never said open the church doors and let all the lucky sinners come find you. It says go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So let me just challenge you. Let's, let's arise and go. Let's put the go back in the gospel. Let's walk across the street. Let's make an effort. Let's go out of our way. That's where the real victories are won. He arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet. I've often wondered, uh, do you remember the, the queen of Sheba uh, that came? Not the half has been told. I've often wondered if this man that traveled from that part of the world had heard things about the people of God and the God of Israel and what, what brought him to this moment. I don't know. The Lord uses many things to get people to start thinking about spiritual things. But don't miss this. Somebody has to explain the way of salvation to them. Somebody has to make plain what the gospel says. That's where our, our gospel Christian comes in. Verse 29, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? So let's add to our list. You want to be a gospel Christian? Number 11, use questions. Ask questions. Here's what I've discovered. Statements declare, and we need to declare the truth. But questions probe. Questions open conversation. One of the hardest things to do is just start a conversation. You ever been burdened for somebody and you wanted to talk to them about the Lord, but you didn't know where to start? How many of you ever been there before? All right, here's what I've discovered. Instead of trying to think of something to say, ask a question and let them talk. I've discovered that the best witnesses, it's not that they're the best talkers. They are very often good listeners. And that if you will ask questions, people will speak out of their heart and you'll discern where they are and a good entry point. I remember years ago on an airplane with a guy who was from Persia, from Iran. And I was trying to figure out a way to start a conversation with him, so I asked a really dumb question. I said, what's your religious background? As if I didn't already know. And he said, I'm, I'm Muslim. And I was trying to think of the thing to say next. And I'll never forget this. He said to me, would you like to know the difference between my religion and your religion? And I thought, oh, brother, here we go. We started an argument. And I said, yes. 
He said, in my religion, he said, we were taught to hate our enemies. He said, but everything I've understood about Christianity, you teach to love your enemies. Could you explain to me why that is? And it was just like the Holy Spirit said, okay, here's the door open. You know what I discovered? Sometimes when you just ask questions, the Lord gives you an open door to give the gospel. By the way, that man heard the gospel, received the gospel, and was wonderfully saved. It was thrilling. It started with a question. Questions like this question. Do you understand what you're reading there? Uh, Questions like, uh, do you ever think about spiritual things? Uh, Tell me about your relationship with God. Uh, Let let me ask you a question. If if you met the Lord today, uh, are you ready to meet God? Uh, Are you certain of of your salvation, where you'll spend eternity? Ask questions. Because questions simply open conversation, and that's what you're looking for, an entry point. Uh, Number 12, write this one down. Recognize your role. What is your role? Your role is not to save them. We don't save anybody. The Lord's the Savior. You can't even bring conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit has to do that. He's the one who does the drawing. But look carefully, verse 30. uh, He asked the question, and verse 31, he said, How can I? except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Would you circle the word guide in your Bible? Because this is really what a witness is. A witness is simply a gospel guide. Have you ever given a guided tour of anything? We were somewhere today, and the man said, let me show you around. And he walked me through what he knew very well, but I'd never seen it before, pointing out things That's what a gospel guide does. That's what a witness does. God doesn't ask you to tell what you don't know. He asks you to share what you do know. That's why Paul said, as much as in me is, I am ready. We comfort them that are in any trouble with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comfort of God. Look, if the gospel has really made a difference in your life, just tell them what you know. It's a guide. This is the word that's used for someone who speaks with authority out of their own experience. Uh, You don't just tell somebody, you show somebody. You, you explain, you speak out of the overflow of what is in you. It might interest you to know that this is the exact same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. In John's gospel, when the Bible says that when the comfort of the Spirit of truth comes, He will what? Guide you into all truth. I, I love this. Do you know what it means? It means you and the Holy Ghost are working together. As you speak the truth, the Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart. As you simply share what you know, God will do what you can't do and speak to their conscience, to their inner man. You can be sure of this. God will do his part if we will simply do ours. So recognize your role. Their response is not your responsibility. People say, well, I'm not very good at this. He didn't get saved. Well, nobody gets saved because you're good at it. Their response is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is simply to guide them to God, to point them to the way of salvation, to say, here we go, this is how you can know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. And then, let's read on. Look at verse number 32. The place of the Scripture which he read was was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself, I like this, or of some other man? I want to jump up and down and say, yes, it's another man. It's a better man. It's the God man. You see, 
Uh, what is the principle here? Write this one down. Number 13, be thorough as you give the gospel. Be thorough. Now, I think you ought to be simple, be plain, be concise, be logical, but be thorough. Don't rush through it. Don't assume they understand. Answer their questions. Spend the time talking with them. Explain it to them. I, I was chewing on this the other day. You ought to go back. I wish you had time right now to do this, but on your own time, you ought to go back and study through Isaiah 53 again. Because Isaiah 53, may I use this term? Isaiah 53 was Philip's gospel track. That's what it was. It was, it was the piece of gospel message that he had in front of him in this scroll. Uh, by the way, could I point something interesting out? Philip already knew the passage. He didn't know what passage that man was reading, but when he heard him reading, he recognized it. You know, one of the reasons I think people are not better Bible witnesses, because many times they're not better Bible students. It's pretty hard to explain the Bible to somebody if we're not studying the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean you may know every portion of Scripture, but a key passage, a key gospel passage like Isaiah 53, you ought to be acquainted with. And so know the Scripture. Be ready always to give an answer to any man that asketh a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But I was thinking on this the other day. Do you know what Isaiah 53 is? It is a thorough presentation of the gospel. It really is. It deals with sin. Uh, you might make a note of this. Three, three things, at least, I know in summary that Isaiah 53 deals with. Number one, it deals with sin. You've got to deal with sin. You can't just give them the good news until they understand the bad news. Uh, saved from what? Why do I need to be saved? In other words, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. Isn't that right? So you've got to deal with sin. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You've got to deal with sin. People have to acknowledge, yes, I need Jesus. Yes, I need a Savior. Yes, I need my sins forgiven. So you've got to be thorough about sin. Then Isaiah 53 not only deals with sin, it deals with the substitute. Who's the substitute? Jesus. It's not enough to tell them Jesus died. They must understand Jesus died for them. It's not enough to say he rose from the dead. I hear people say, oh, yeah, we celebrate that on Easter. Do you know why he rose from the dead? He rose from the dead to give you everlasting life. This is the, the substitutionary work of Jesus. He took our sin so we could take his righteousness. So you're explaining to them sin and then the fact they have a substitute and his name is Jesus Christ. And then you want to explain to them salvation. So they're lost. Jesus made a way for them to be saved. Now, here's how to be saved. And Isaiah 53 does that. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. You ought to read Isaiah 53. It deals with the, the lost sheep, wandering sheep. Then it deals with the perfect lamb, the sacrifice, the substitute. And then in Isaiah 53, it talks about faith. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? At the end of Isaiah 53, it even talks about being justified. Think about that. Forgiveness of sin. Justification. What is that? That's the Lord removing the sin and giving you peace with God. That's salvation. So we must take the time to explain salvation to people. Now, you, you happen to live in what is commonly referred to as the Bible Belt. You know that, right? But do you know what I've discovered? Most people in the Bible Belt have never heard a real clear presentation of the gospel. That's shocking, isn't it? So you ask people if they're a Christian, and everybody says, well, I'm not of another religious persuasion. I'm American, so yes, I'm a Christian. That's not what we're asking here, people. 
not even do even believe there is a God. But more and more, we're living in a culture where even in regions like this, people are not familiar with the Scripture. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't understand the need for salvation. So we've got to back up, and we've got to start with the basics and come forward from there. And people will try to get you off on every tangent. Have you noticed that? They'll ask you all kinds of questions and what you think about this, that, and, and the other thing. And what you've got to do, constantly bring them back to salvation. Bring them back to salvation. Bring them back to salvation because this is the message of the gospel. And then, let's read on. Look at verse number 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. By the way, here's the most obvious thing about a witness. You've got to speak. I hear people say, well, pray I can be a good witness. I'm trying to live for the Lord and live right. Well, I believe your life ought to witness, but your lips have to witness too. Let me ask you a question. When they bring a witness into a courtroom, do they say, we're glad you're here. Now just stand over here and look pretty and we're all going to look at you. No, last time I checked, they put them on the witness stand. They can tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Isn't that right? So you're going to be a witness for Jesus. It's not enough that you simply live a clean life. That's good. That's a billboard for the gospel. But now you've got to open your mouth. You've got to speak. So look at it. Philip opened his mouth. Here it is. And began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now we've talked about preaching Jesus. But write this down. Number 14, begin where they are. Wherever they are in their, their understanding, start there. You've got to find the starting point. And, and I'm just going to tell you, it's different for everybody. Some people know there is a God. Uh, other people say, well, I, I think there's a God. And so you've got to back up a little bit. You see what I mean? But you've got to begin with some scripture, and you've got to begin wherever they are in their understanding. Watch, this is what the Lord does with us. He meets us where we are, and he leads us to where we need to be. Would you write that expression down? You meet people where they are. That doesn't mean you leave them there, but you've got to meet them there. Meet them where they are, and then lead them to where they need to be. So you're looking for the entry point. Uh, for some people, it may be fear. I mean by that, you may meet somebody, and they're anxious and worked up about the world situation and the future, and... And uh, you begin there. Uh, that's the entry point for the gospel. For some people, it may be they're looking for purpose in life. Uh, all right, let me tell you how to have meaning and purpose in life. You've got to know the God who gave us life. You're looking for the entry point. Uh, even issues in our culture, people want answers to. Uh, use that as an entry point, not to convince them of something or to win an argument or get into some big debate but to bring them to the gospel. You're always looking for the people and you're looking for the point where you can begin to give them the message of Jesus. Keep reading verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now let's pause there just a moment because this has always intrigued me. How did the guy know he needed to be baptized? How many of you think that's a legitimate question? I mean, he's just been talking about salvation in Isaiah 53, and there's nothing in Isaiah 53 about baptism. So where does this come in? I'll give you two or three thoughts. One is he had just left Jerusalem. Uh, if you ever go through the old city of Jerusalem, uh, there, they've uncovered these ancient baths, not bath like we would think, 
But there were these places for ceremonial cleansing literally all over the city. It was such a religious city. And remember, he'd just been there for a religious time. They had him for men. They had him for women. They would go in one side. They would get ceremonially cleansed, come out the other side. Now they can go to the temple, make their sacrifice. He's got this idea in his mind. they got to get clean, got to get clean. Isn't that what every sinner wants? When you realize you're dirty, what do you want? You want to get clean. So perhaps that was what was in his mind. Perhaps it was that he understood that these new Christians had been being baptized after they, they identify with Jesus. One, this outward mark for them was that they were being baptized. It was not just another ceremonial cleansing, and it was not an Old Testament ritual. It was New Testament baptism. It was letting others know, I now identify with Jesus, which is what baptism is. It's an outward sign of an inward change. That's why we baptize by immersion. Uh, baptizo, immerse, to dip, immerse, a plunge. That's literally what the word means. But watch this. When you stand in the water, the water crosses your body like the cross where Jesus died. You go into the water like he was buried. You come out of the water like he rose from the dead. There is no other means of baptism that pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus other than that mode. So you're identifying with the death of Christ for your sins, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection. What is that, church? 1 Corinthians 15, what is that? That's the gospel. That's, that is the gospel. That's the ingredients of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It means you're testifying to everybody. You recognized you were a dead man or a dead woman, dead in your sins. You've been placed into Christ, and you've come alive, a new person in Jesus. That's what baptism pictures the water doesn't wash away your sin. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. Matter of fact, you can be baptized a hundred times and go into the water a dry center and come out a wet center. The water doesn't save. Jesus saves. But somewhere this man understood this is what believers do. This is what Christians do. So he's got this in his mind. And look carefully at Philip's response, verse 37. And Philip said, if thou, what's that next word? Mark that in your Bible. Because when we talk about baptism, we talk about believer's baptism. And people want to say, well, I got baptized as a baby. Hold on just a minute now. Because New Testament baptism is believer's baptism. It is a demonstration, a testimony of what has transpired on the inside. I wear this wedding ring. Why? Because I want to let everybody know there was a day I stood at an altar and gave my wedding vow and I belong to someone and she belongs to me that's what baptism is it testifies of that so look at the verse if thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest and he answered and said I love this this may be one of the most simple and profound professions of faith ever I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God isn't that good by the way the Bible says only by the Holy Spirit will anybody ever say that nobody says that on their own the Holy Spirit has to put that in you. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right, so what is the principle here? Number 15, if you're going to be a gospel Christian, now you've given them the truth. This is where you draw the net, so to speak. You've been fishing for men, now you're drawing the net. This is where you bring people to a point of decision. And what do you do? Number 15, you call them to believe on Christ and give them an opportunity to confess Him. Once you've told them who Christ is and how to be saved, there must be a moment where you invite them to believe on Christ and give them an opportunity to confess Him as their Savior. Look, if it's just knowledge, then all you've got to do is tell them. 
But knowledge alone does not save. There must be a response. Isn't that right? We must believe the gospel. We must obey the gospel. So at some point, we must call people to believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. That's what's going on here. Do you believe, he said? Oh, yes, I believe. And he makes this public confession, this open confession of Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know, the word confess is an interesting word. Because a lot of times, even in our preaching, even our gospel preaching, sometimes we say, come and ask the Lord to save you. Ask the Lord to save you. Actually, the word is confess. And the word confess doesn't mean ask. The word confess means agree. This is, this is beautiful. This is powerful. Do you really think you've got to beg God to save you? That's why Jesus died. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what confess means? Confess means agree with God. Watch this. The moment you say back to God what God has already said to you, the Lord says, forgiven and cleansed. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love this. The moment you say to God, Lord, you're right. I'm a sinner, and I can't make myself clean. I need you, and I trust you. At that moment, the Lord says, that's all you've got to say. That's enough for me. And at that moment, confession becomes cleansing. But there is this, this beautiful, and it's not between Philip and the Ethiopian. Don't miss this. It's between the Ethiopian and God. Uh, the, the evangelist got to hear it and got to be there, but it's a divine transaction, you see, calling men to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess Him as their personal Savior. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, but the Lord Jesus was the great inviter. People ask me sometimes, why do you still give invitations for people to come? I'm going to tell you why. Because Jesus did. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come, take up your cross, follow me. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Sounds like to me Jesus lived with arms wide open. And if he did, and we're to do the exact same thing, don't you think we ought to be inviting people to come to Christ? So we're getting the gospel out, and then we're inviting them to come in, not just into church, but to come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel Christians. Number 16. Let's come down to the end of the story. Look at verse 39. When they were come up out of the water, by the way, in verse 38, he commanded the chair to stand still. They went down both into the water. There's baptism again. Both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and I like this expression, and he went on his way rejoicing. There's joy in salvation, isn't there? I think for the soul winner and for the sinner who's come to Christ. Uh, this is a reference to this Ethiopian man. Uh, Philip just got to be there and be a part of it, and we get to be there and be a part of it sometimes. But remember, what people need is Jesus. And you're going to leave them, but Jesus never is. Look at verse 40. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Don't miss this one. Number 16, don't stop. <laughs> we make a whole lot about him preaching in Samaria. That's good. And we make a whole lot about him preaching to the Ethiopian man in the desert. That's good. But don't ever miss verse 40. When the glorious experience and event passed, guess what he's still doing? Preaching Jesus. It is a way of life. It's not just something you do an hour a week. It's something that's woven of the fabric of your life. It ought to be in the DNA of the child of God. Uh, Spurgeon said, have you no desire for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? He meant by that, 
if a person really has been saved, it just presupposes they're going to be excited about it and want somebody else to know Jesus as their Savior. And so let's return to where we started our study. Come over and Acts to Acts 21. This is the final mention of Philip the Evangelist, you remember? And I think it's fascinating, Acts 21, verse 8, the next day we that were of Paul's company departed, we came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Here's the point I want to make. The last time we saw him in Acts 8, verse 40, what was he doing? Preaching the gospel. That's right. And the next time we see him in Acts 21 and verse number 8, you know how many years have transpired between the two? About 20 years. Think about that. From Acts 8 to Acts 21, about 20 years have lapsed, and yet, don't miss this, what's he doing? He's still telling them about Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if our whole life was so filled with this that at every stage in life we were just telling people about Jesus? It's not just for young people to do. It's not just for old people to do. It's for all people to do who know and love Jesus. Don't stop. There is a place to start. Can I tell you where to start? Right where you are. Start in your Samaria. Start with your Ethiopian. Start right where you are. But there's no place to stop. Not till we see Jesus and the last soul has been saved. Then, number 17, you're in Acts 28, right? Let me give you another principle here. Help others in the work of the gospel. This was striking to me, but a gospel Christian is not just about them. It's about Jesus. And that means they're laboring together with anybody who wants to get the message of Jesus out. By the time you get to Acts 21, Philip is not the star of the story. May I use that expression? We all understand there's only one star in the story. That's Jesus, right? But I mean by this, by the time you get to Acts 21, Philip is not front and center in the, in the work. The apostle Paul is really leading the charge. And yet, I love this. When Paul's missionary team comes through town, guess whose house they stayed in? Philip the Evangelist. Here's a guy who gets it, who sees the big picture, who understands it's not about him, it's about anybody that's getting the gospel out. That's why you ought to be engaged in foreign missions work. That's why you ought to give to missions. It's why if you can, you ought to take a mission trip. It'd make you see the whole world different. It's why when people come through who are engaged in gospel work, you should partner with them in prayer. You should say, how can we help this? How can we help move this forward? Because we're all just trying to do whatever we can to get the message of Jesus to as many people as possible. I think it's beautiful to see his humility in this. Uh, Remember, he was one of the first deacons, one of the seven. Deacon means what? Sir, he's still a servant. He's just a servant of Christ and a servant of the church, whatever the Lord chooses and however God wants to use him. He's a servant of the gospel. He's a gospel Christian. Number 18, I give you another thought from this verse. Use your home. Uh, Isn't it interesting? Think through this. He opens his home to them. He opens his home to get the gospel work moved forward. There's something wonderful about using Christian hospitality to open doors for the message of Jesus. Somebody said, well, I don't know what I could do. Could you bake a pie? Could you have a family over for dinner one night? Uh, Could you have a little prayer meeting in your living room for the neighbors to come? I mean, think. Let's get out of the box a little bit, out of our bubble a little bit. What could I do to engage people, to talk to them about Jesus Christ? I'm going to tell you what I've discovered. Open homes very often lead to open hearts. If you want to see people's hearts open, open your heart to them. Open your home to them. 
demonstrate the love of God to them. This is why charity is such a powerful thing. It's not just giving a few dollars to the poor. It is literally opening your life up to them. And as they get near, they desire more of the Christ that you're talking about. So think, you might not be the guy getting up giving the sermon, but use whatever platform you have to engage someone with the gospel of Jesus. And then, this is very important, look at verse number 9. He's Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He abode with him. By the way, I've been at the place where Philip lived. It's called Caesarea by the Sea, Caesarea Maritime. It's beautiful. Uh, Right on the Mediterranean, uh, not far from Tel Aviv. Uh, It is where uh, Cornelius got saved. Remember when Paul went to the house of Cornelius and the door of faith opened to the Gentiles? Same town. It is where uh, Herod made an oration. They said, it's the voice of the gods. You remember that? And it was eaten by worms. That was the, that was the same place. Uh, it's also the same place where Paul was kept in jail for two years before he got sent off uh, to stand trial. That's an amazing city. But that is where Philip and his family lived. And look at verse 9. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Write this one down. Number 19. Work on your own family. Don't miss this. This man who preached in Samaria who preached to the Ethiopian in the desert, who preached in all those coastal cities, who had been preaching in the city of Caesarea, did not neglect to get the gospel to his own children. And I just want to say to you, start your soul-winning prayer list with those you love most on earth and those who love you. You want to take them to heaven with you? Uh, Look, get them in the ark. Pray them into the ark. Weep them into the ark. Witness them into the ark. Seek their souls until they come into the ark of safety and come to know the Lord Jesus. And go after your family. Don't lose the burden and passion to see those that are nearest to you, your family members and friends and and those you you interact with all the time about everything under the sun to get the gospel to them. And then one final thing, number 20 on the list, gospel Christians. This is beautiful. Teach the next generation how they can give the truth. You see what his daughters are doing? Look at verse number 9. The Bible says they're prophesying. I've heard a lot of debate over this, you know. Does this mean they were women preachers? Uh, let's put it in context. Do you know what Joel 2 prophesied? That when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit would come, your sons and your daughters shall what? Prophesy. Literally, the young men and young women, open to God now, full of the Spirit of the Lord, would open their mouths and speak forth the truth. That's what the word prophesy means. And this is powerful. Don't miss this. It wasn't just Philip talking about Jesus. Guess who else is talking about Jesus now? His four daughters are talking about Jesus. How many of you mamas and daddies and grandmas and grandpas know there's no joy quite like seeing your children follow Jesus and serve Him? Isn't that right? Could I challenge you? Teach the next generation to be gospel Christians. Uh, Teach the young people, teach the children how they can witness for Christ, how they can speak for the Lord, how they can give the gospel. Uh, You learn it, you do it, you show them by example, and then you take the time to train them. In other words, all the things I'm sharing with you right now, pass them on. Somebody said, well, I wish, I wish I could do a better job of that. All right, I just gave you 20 things. Why not take those 20 things and sit down with a young Christian, somebody in your sphere of influence, and say, can I just share with you some things I've been learning about being a gospel Christian and sharing my faith and witnessing and giving my testimony? And just talk through them. Uh, you don't have to give a lecture, but you can share the lessons and pass it on. This is how it goes on. Truth endures from generation to generation. This is how the spiritual chain reaction continues. This is the ripple effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now let's get down to let's get down to business for just a minute. If we know all of this, the question is not do you know it or do you believe it? The question is what are we going to do with it? Because I hate to tell you this, you are now accountable for everything you've just heard. As am I. So what should we do with it? Just be hearers? Just be just be head nodders or shall we be doers? See, you can have a page full of notes and a head full of facts, but if you don't have a heart full of the Holy Spirit and armed with the gospel, ready to give the truth, we, we miss the whole point. It dead ends. Churches die, and the Christian faith fails to advance as it should in a community when individual believers fail to be gospel Christians. How many of you would like to see this church go on for the glory of God? Yes? You'd like to see the next generation reached? Okay, don't expect that to be, Lord, help the preacher to preach a better sermon next week. Let it be this, Lord, help me tell somebody today about Jesus. Must I go in empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul, not one soul with which to greet him must I empty-handed go? I mean, look, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. Anybody with me on that? Who are you going to take with you? When you get there, who will you bring along? The Lord has to save them, and they've got to trust Christ for themselves. But who will you believe God to use you to reach and teach the gospel to? Because this is the work of the gospel.